All music is vibration, and any note that you hear is just a string or other resonant material vibrating at a specific frequency. For hundreds of years, various human cultures have tried to categorize and systematize those frequencies, but in the end, it's just physics, man. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about sympathetic vibration, harmonics, multiphonics, overtone series, and even, sometimes, non-tempered tuning. Strong Songs is an independent, listener-supported show, which means I'm not owned by a big podcast network. It's just me making the show that I want to make as I slowly transform into a corncob. If you would like to support me in this endeavor, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out more. On this episode, it's time to answer your most resonant musical questions. I always have a lot of fun opening up the Strong Songs mailbag, and it gives me an opportunity to talk about a lot of different songs in a single episode. That's the plan for today, and we've got a lot to get through, so let's put on some tea, grab our letter openers, and get into it. Let's do this mailbag thing. I always love reading all of your questions. And while I have probably more questions in the backlog than I'll ever be able to answer, it's really nice to have so many options whenever I'm making a mailbag episode. So please do send me your questions. You can send them to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I will definitely read it. I will definitely save it. There's a chance I may not be able to answer it, or at least I may not answer it immediately after getting it, but I will definitely put it in the log, and uh, it'll also just kind of tickle my brain and get me thinking about different things. Um, It's always fun to just sort of read through questions that I have in the backlog and think about them and maybe go listen to some of the tunes that they're asking about, since this show really does introduce me to a lot of new music, and I hope that these mailbag episodes introduce some of you to new music as well. So let's get into it. Um, We've got two questions up top that are both about counting. I get a lot of questions about counting, of course, but these two are sort of, one is pretty straightforward and one is a little bit more tricky. So we're going to start with the more straightforward one as a kind of a warm-up. This question comes from Kyle. Kyle writes, My question is related to a counting issue I have with the real estate song, Darling. I've always been thrown by the extra beat or whatever it is. I recently worked merch for the band when they came through and I was finally face-to-face with the lead singer, Martin Courtney. I asked about the song and he laughed and said they wrote it when they had a different drummer and essentially he doesn't know. At this point in his email, Kyle wrote... Ah, in all caps to indicate his frustration. Um, he then writes, it's always plagued me for years. Please help. All right, well, let's listen to the song. This is the intro, which I believe is the thing that Kyle is writing to ask about. The intro to the song Darling by the band Real Estate. So this may sound a little bit weird to you when you're first listening to it, but actually, this is just in 4-4. The tricky thing that's going on here is that there are three bar phrases in the third bar. The drummer is doing something a little bit funky with the groove, but the timing isn't hard to count. It's just one, two, three, four, 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 one, two, three, four. So 
So what's going on in this song isn't so much a case of an extra beat or an odd meter, it's just a case of rhythmic displacement. The drummer is displacing the groove that they're playing over the first two bars on that third bar, and partly because it's a three-bar phrase, which is a little bit unusual, we're a little more conditioned to listen for even-bar phrases, eight-bar, four-bar phrases. When you hear a three-bar phrase, sometimes it can kind of throw you and make you feel like, oh, the phrase ended a little bit too early. So I think that's also contributing to this feeling like it's in an odd time signature, but really it's just that the drummer turns the beat around on that third bar. So here on Strong Songs, we talk a lot about thump, pop, and sizzle. I don't think that I've mentioned it yet in year four, so this is the first mention of thump and pop and sizzle of Strong Songs year four. So basically, when you're looking at grooves in popular music, there tend to be three main elements of a given groove, and when I say a groove, I mean a drum groove, a percussion groove, whatever it is that's providing the usually non-harmonic groove element of the recording. So in this case, that is just a drum set, and it's actually playing a very, very straightforward rock groove that has all three elements, the thump, the pop, and the sizzle, laid out very, very predictably, which I think kind of also contributes to how it throws you the minute it changes from that predictable, comfortable groove. So the thump is usually something down low that usually lands on downbeats. A lot of times it's a kick drum. In this case, it's the kick drum. When you're talking about a drum set, it is the kick drum. The pop is usually offsetting the thump. So a lot of times the thump and the pop will be in different areas of the bar. In this case, the kick drum is on the one and the three, and the pop, the snare drum, is on the two and the four. And then the sizzle is the thing that kind of ties it all together. That's providing more subdivision. In this case, that is the hi-hat. It's usually some kind of higher frequency sound, maybe a tambourine or a shaker, maybe a cymbal, maybe some combination of all of those things. Can be anything. So once you combine the thump and the pop and the sizzle of this very straightforward rock backbeat, you get this. All right, so what is going on in this real estate song that's making it seem kind of confusing? Well, what's happening is the drummer is establishing that groove for the first two bars of that three-bar phrase, but on the third bar, the drummer, whose name, by the way, is Jackson Paulus, Jackson Paulus played drums on this record, what he's doing is on the third bar, he's taking that same groove, he's keeping the hi-hat steady, but he's moving the kick drum and the snare drum both up an eighth note, so they both become syncopated, and they happen an eighth note earlier than you would expect them to. So let me try to show you how that works, just sort of drumming on myself here. So I'm going to keep a steady tempo here on my chest, just sort of drumming on my chest, and then I'm gonna sing what he's playing. So the regular beat is just boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, right? Thump, pop, thump, pop. Okay, so let's just keep this going. Now what he's doing every third bar is he's like moving that thump and pop over. So it goes like this. Boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom. Once you start to focus on that hi-hat and just keep the tempo steady, you'll start to hear how the drums just kind of move over from where you would expect it and the whole thing is on upbeats for one bar. So yeah, just some rhythmic displacement, no odd meter or anything else going on. I hope that's helpful. And hey, this is a cool song by a cool band. I didn't know about them, but uh, thanks for turning me on to them. All right, our next question comes from Don, and it's about a song that is more complicated 
than that real estate song, though the answer actually winds up being kind of the same as the answer for the real estate song, which is sort of fun. Uh, Don writes, I have a mystery that I need help with. On Sting's ghost story from his 1999 album Brand New Day, there is some delicious devilry at work with time signature and rhythm. I believe Sting is singing triplets in the verses, though there aren't quite enough background clues for me to tell. Don goes on to detail a bunch of his guesses about what's going on rhythmically, what might be happening, and really kind of beautifully describes his experience of just listening to the song, which I love this song. I remember this was actually the album that got me into Sting back when I was in music school. I listened to this and I was like, oh, okay, so that guy from The Police is like a really, really good musician. All of those guys from The Police were really good musicians. Hmm, I never really realized because their music was on the radio and I was a weird jazz snob. Um, so anyways, this is a really cool album. Um, Brand New Day, great record, and Ghost Story is a great song. And yeah, I wanted to listen to it because I remember having a similar experience to Don when I first listened to it because this song is very tricky about the counting, even though... In the end, the counting is actually very straightforward. So let's start from the beginning. There's kind of a bunch of phases to this. This song is very much a narrative. It's a story. And it starts here. I watch the western sky The sun is sinking and It seems pretty straightforward rhythmically, right? The flying south It sets me thinking It almost sounds like a folk song. I did not want to reach. I did for one, two, three, four, one. Why did not kill me? Just make me tougher. So then the song pulls this very tricky move where it begins to layer, things begin to build out, and soon the drums come in and they sort of throw you. Because what's really going on is actually the mother of all fake-outs. You know, some songs, they start with a fake-out riff that goes for two bars, and it sort of tricks your ears into thinking that the downbeat is in one place, and then the rhythm section comes in. And surprise, actually, the downbeat is the upbeat, and the upbeat is the downbeat, and you're kind of discombobulated, and then the band comes in. I've talked about this on a bunch of Q&A episodes. There's a million great examples of it. This is like the super long con version of a fake-out intro, because, in fact, everything that Sting is singing is an upbeat. So when he sings, you know... You're kind of hearing this like Like that's where you kind of hear the beat But in fact, that's not where the beat is This entire time, he's singing upbeats So here's how you actually count it And let's just say and during what we thought was the downbeat And then we'll kind of add the downbeats in between the ands Here we go and, 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 one, and two, and three, and four, and one, and two, and three, and four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Now the snare is in on three. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And the melody is still upbeats. So just really stick with that pulse. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. One. 
everything that's happening is on an upbeat, just feel that pulse. One. One. And now the groove comes in. One, two, three, four. Is the force binds the stars? One, two, three, four, one. One, one, two, three, four, one. Really cool, right? It's such a good song. Alright, now check this out. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So now he's actually returned to that melody from the beginning of the song, but there's a really standard thump, pop, sizzle kind of groove behind it that places that melody squarely on the upbeats. Man, Sting is Sting is really good. I don't know if you've if you've heard, but Sting is a pretty good musician. Uh, I was just watching that show, Only Murders in the Building, which, by the way, really great show with really great theme music. But um, Sting has a very enjoyable cameo, kind of more than a cameo, a very enjoyable little guest spot playing this sort of maybe heightened version of himself. Maybe not. I know Sting is kind of an odd guy. So, anyways, by the end of this song, the pulse is really clear. The fact that this whole melody is being sung on upbeats um, is very clear because there's this groove to bring the chest drumming back in and the melody is just bum 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 it's all upbeats bum 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 and once you hear that steady pulse behind um, behind the melody you can really place it the thing is when you remove that pulse your ear just naturally begins to gravitate toward those upbeats being downbeats but if you can count it you can actually count the entire song at a consistent tempo from start to finish without anything changing there's a couple of odd um, phrase lengths but there's no odd meter in this entire song it's a steady tempo it's just that a whole bunch of the song is syncopated a whole bunch of what's going on the guitar parts the other string parts the percussion hits the melody is all happening on upbeats even though that pulse is fundamentally behind it on the downbeats. So let's go back to that intro and listen again and just see if you can hear these notes, hear the notes that he's singing and playing as upbeats instead of as downbeats. You kind of feel it? Let me put a little bit of a beat behind this so you can hear it. that help? So Don, I think that you might find that over time, you actually start to just hear it that way, and you always hear the fact that they're playing upbeats, even though it feels like they're playing downbeats at first. And that's kind of the magic of this song, 
is that it shows you one thing and then it reveals that it's something else. And that's actually kind of narratively true of what's going on in the song as well. This is like a lot of songs on this album. This might even be something that Sting was going for, but a lot of songs on Brand New Day undergo this transformation. They all kind of have protagonists who begin lying to themselves or, or feeling one way and then have a revelation midway through the song and kind of realize what's really going on. This, of course, is the story of someone who's like, I'm fine. It's fine. I don't need you. I'm I'm totally happy. And by the end of the song, it's like, oh, God, I totally loved you and lost you, didn't I? Oh, no. Anyway, Don, I hope this helps you hear a little bit more when you're listening to this song. And, you know, don't let go of the mystery of it either. This is a very beautiful song, and it's not all you know, about breaking down the counting and the harmony or whatever. There's just something ineffable to it as well. That's actually true of a lot of songs on this album. And yeah, Brand New Day, Sting, really great record. Go check that out if you haven't listened to it. It's a good one. All right, Kurt writes in with a question about instrument quality and playing on cheap instruments. He writes, I read that the guys in the band Cake play kind of cheap, crappy instruments, but that they believe that gives them some of their sound. I can't find where I heard this, so it could just be something I heard. How does instrument quality affect sound, recording, etc.? So this is a big question. This is literally a million-dollar question because there is a whole billion-dollar industry dedicated just to telling you that the gear that you have is not good enough to sound as good as your favorite bands or your favorite musicians. It's just a whole world out there of people who will be like, oh, you want to get that vintage sound? Well, you're going to need a Neve preamp. You're going to need this specific kind of, you know, Vox amp from the early 90s before they started making them in China because that's got the right wiring. And you'll endlessly see this kind of stuff. Well, if you want to get a Fender, you want to get a Fender guitar from before this era. If you're going to get a Gibson, get it from before they closed the Memphis shop because the Memphis shop made the best instruments, etc., etc. There's always going to be someone telling you, well, you need not just this brand, this already probably expensive brand, but this era, this collector's piece to get the real sound. And the thing is, that is just largely not true. I think you probably saw that coming. Most of that isn't true. You can make good music with very inexpensive gear these days. And that kind of brings me back around to Kurt's question, which isn't just, can I make good music on inexpensive gear? But actually, what are the specific differences between cheaper gear and more expensive gear in terms of sound and playability? Well, this one I'll just base on my own personal experience. I play a lot of different instruments. I play them all at different proficiency levels, but I do play a lot of different instruments, and I have fairly nice instruments. And I would say by and large, instruments, and this also goes to recording gear, microphones, preamps, you know, processing, outboard units, whatever. This is kind of true for all gear across the board. And that's that if you picture there kind of being a spectrum that you go along as you pay more and more for theoretically better, more expensive gear, at first, like the closer you are to zero dollars on that spectrum, the more each dollar that you spend is going to be noticeable in terms of the quality of what you're getting. So the difference between a $100 guitar and a $1,000 guitar is more significant than the difference between a $1,000 guitar and a $5,000 guitar. So the farther you get along the spectrum and the more you're spending, the more fine the distinctions are between the instruments to the point where there's really kind of diminishing returns. And you can spend a lot of money on musical instruments that don't actually really accomplish anything that a much cheaper instrument wouldn't also be able to do. So I would consider kind of two axes as you move through those tiers. There's the way the instrument sounds and 
there's the way that the instrument plays. The sounds is kind of, you know, what does someone on the outside hear when you play it? The plays, like how does the instrument play, that's how does it feel for you as the musician playing it. And those two axes are actually kind of different, at least in my experience, particularly when it comes to guitars and saxophone, which are the two instruments that I'm most familiar with, that I own the most of and have played the most of, and I'm probably most proficient at, so I'm most aware of the sort of differences in quality between those three tiers. So first there's sound. How does the instrument sound? And that's actually where there's not going to be as big of a difference between a sort of affordable, entry-level, mass-produced, you know, factory-made instrument that you get for, you know, off of Amazon or something. It's going to sound pretty much the same as a really expensive instrument. If somebody good plays it, they're going to sound good. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to sound like you don't know what you're doing. That's especially true these days. I'm sure if you've ever gone on musical YouTube, people make videos so much. These videos must do really well because I see them constantly. It'll just be like a saxophone player saying, I ordered the cheapest saxophone off of Amazon and I was amazed. And then the video, they'll be like, this thing is pretty good. Guitar players do this all the time. It's a very common type of YouTube video. And I think it's because manufacturers have kind of figured out how to make pretty good instruments and make them, you know, at a scale that allows them to sell them for really cheap. So that's easy for me to say, but I realize that I can actually demonstrate this. So let's have a little bit of fun. I want to do a demonstration for you because I happen to own two versions of the same guitar, a pretty cheap version of the guitar and a more expensive version of the same guitar. So one of my favorite types of guitar is the semi-hollow body electric guitar, the 335 type guitar. This is what jazz guitarists play, but it's also what a lot of rock guitarists play. It's like one of the sounds of rock and roll. It's a little bit less common than a Les Paul Telly Strat, the kind of holy trinity of electric guitars. But for me, it's always been my favorite sound. It's my favorite looking guitar. I love to play them. I love to listen to them. It's just a wonderful type of guitar. When I say the 335, that's the Gibson model 335, which was kind of the flagship of this kind of guitar. So for a long time, I did not have a Gibson 335 because those are very expensive. Gibson guitars are among the most expensive of the big brand guitars. And the 335, it's a semi-hollow body guitar, which means it's, you know, carefully cut. The wood is really kind of complicated. I think it's just a very complicated instrument to make because it requires a lot of woodwork. So they're pretty expensive guitars. I didn't have a Gibson. Instead, I had an Epiphone 335. Now, Epiphone is Gibson's line of more affordable guitars, and they're really good instruments. People always recommend that you start out on an Epiphone guitar if you're getting started, because you don't want to spend thousands of dollars on a Gibson guitar. Just get an Epiphone. They're pretty much the same. And I gotta say, I agree with that. What you're hearing right now is me just playing some blues and A on my Epiphone 335, which cost me three, four hundred bucks back when I bought it seven or eight years ago. So at some point in the last few years, I got more serious about learning guitar. I started practicing a lot more, and I made a goal for myself that I was going to learn to play a certain number of things and achieve a certain proficiency on the instrument. And when I did, I was going to tell myself, okay, man, you did it. You are now enough of a guitar player that you can get your dream guitar, your favorite guitar ever, a Gibson 335. Last year, that happened. I went and got a Made in America Gibson 335, and you're hearing that right now. Now, the Gibson cost quite a bit more than the Epiphone. It was a few thousand dollars instead of a few hundred and I'm playing the same blues riffs on that guitar and tell me if you think one sounds better than the other.
So just to give you a couple of comparisons a little bit closer to one another so you can really try to hear the difference, here's the less expensive Epiphone. And here's the more expensive Gibson playing the same thing. So I'm guessing you probably can't really hear the difference between those two. I think the Gibson has fresher strings because I haven't been playing the Epiphone, so there's a couple of minor differences. They do have different pickups in them, but really, I mean, they sound pretty much the same. That's the thing, though. They sound the same, but playing them, and this was actually really driven home for me just now because I learned and played the same thing on both, which I haven't done that much of, playing them is another story. Now, this is just in my experience, but when it comes to playing the instrument, the actual physical act of putting your hands on it and playing it, that's actually where there starts to be a difference. It's still not huge. Like like I said, they've, people have gotten pretty good at making instruments that are pretty inexpensive. And I mean, honestly, that Epiphone 335, that is a great instrument. And there's no way that that Gibson is 10 times better than the Epiphone. But in a subtle but consistent way, I find the Gibson to just be a more pleasurable and a more immediately responsive instrument. Like I said, it's subtle, and the Epiphone is a great instrument. It's actually easy to play. If I didn't have them right next to each other and couldn't compare them, you know, I wouldn't even really notice it. But there's just a smoothness to the way that the Gibson neck feels in particular that I really like and that just feels right under my fingers. And that's the thing with an instrument like this that you play for a long time. Eventually, you just become familiar with its idiosyncrasies and I've become more and more familiar with this Gibson's idiosyncrasies and they're just it's a kind of a whole is greater than the sum of its parts thing it's just a really lovely instrument and there are a lot of times where it's just kind of there for me in a way that's hard to even describe but is undeniable and is something that I've only ever really felt with my tenor saxophone which is also a, a Selmer Mark VI a very nice saxophone that I've had for a long time and taken good care of and with that instrument as well the sound is great I mean it's a great sounding horn but it really comes down to feel it comes down to the physical relationship that i have with the instrument and that's where higher quality instruments tend to set themselves apart at least for me and that's actually something that can cut both ways i can totally imagine someone preferring to play on kind of trashy beater instruments because they like the way the instrument fights them they like the idiosyncrasies they like some character of it it, it helps them feel good when they're playing it so i could totally see that being just as much of a consideration as the sound of a less expensive instrument is just the way that it feels, the way that it feels when they play it, the physical response of the instrument. So, you know, this is one of those things that's different for everybody. It's different for every instrument. There could be a person who generally prefers to play nice instruments, but has one weird beater axe that they just love. It's a really complicated and very interesting, I think, topic, because you're really just talking about the tools of the trade and the artistic tools, the things that people use to channel their own inner artistic vision out to the world. And that's a sort of endlessly fascinating thing. I mean, as history has taught us over and over and over again, it's never going to work one way. There is no optimal way to to create art, it's never going to be that there is one tool you can get that will unlock everything, even though the people marketing musical gear and musical instruments would love to tell you otherwise. All right, hope that answered your question, Kurt. Let's move along to the next one. Grace writes with a two-parter. Her first question is, what is the distinction between a bridge and a pre-chorus? And I can 
I can demonstrate that pretty easily. A bridge goes later in a song; it usually goes after the second chorus. A pre-chorus goes earlier, and more often, it usually comes before every single chorus. But that distinction of frequency is important. The bridge happens once; the pre-chorus happens usually every time the song sets up the chorus. Now, I do want to make the distinction here that I'm talking about pop songwriting, so the kind of songs you hear on the radio with a verse, a chorus, and a bridge. I'm not talking about older songs like American Songbook tunes and jazz. As tunes, which those have a bridge, and that's like in an A A B A 32 bar form. The bridge does repeat just over and over again. That's kind of a different thing, and I get the sense that Grace is asking, you know, pop song form, like most of the songs that I talk about on Strong Songs. But if you listen to say the episode on Monin by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, there's a bridge on that song, and they repeat the form over and over again for every solo. So they do the bridge more than once, but that's a different kind of thing. And of course, not all songs have a bridge, and not all songs have a pre-chorus. I I love songs without bridges because bridges. Are really hard to write, but just to give you an example of a song that I have actually covered on the show, Annie Lennox's "Walking on Broken Glass," which I did in year two, love that song. Killer song's a cool episode if you haven't listened to it. That song has a very clear pre-chorus and a very clear bridge. The verse is currently playing underneath us. The pre-chorus is about to come in. Here's the pre-chorus. It's sort of a step forward after the verse that tells you we're about to open the door and go somewhere new, and it sets up that arrival on the chorus. It's like a staircase that leads up to the chorus. So the bridge tends to come after the chorus, usually after the second chorus. So it goes verse, then chorus, verse, then chorus. Then the bridge comes. The bridge is just sort of a whole new area. In the case of this song, it's very clear when the bridge comes. Everything changes. The harmony changes. The vibe of the song changes. It opens way up, and it comes right after that chorus. So this is the bridge. It's just a very different sounding part of the song. It only happens once, and usually comes a little later in the song as opposed to a pre-chorus, which happens over and over again, usually before the chorus every time. Also, man, this song is so good. I should make an episode of this show about that song. Annie Lennox is just really good, isn't she? You know, actually, I mentioned this. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this song, "Little Bird," on that episode. But man, "Little Bird" off of Diva, this 1992 Annie Lennox record that "Walking on Broken Glass" is on. That song rules. I, I got this album on vinyl since I get everything、um, that I talk about on the show on vinyl, and I just put that album on sometimes. And whenever that song comes on, I'm like, you know, this is a really good song, and I could have made a whole episode about it too. Even though there's a million other songs I want to talk about, but. Anyways, go listen to "Little Bird" by Annie Lennox. So good. Okay. Anyways, Grace has a second question. She asks, "I find that songs that affect me most have four notes that repeat. 
One example that comes to mind immediately is the Skins theme song. What is it about a four-note motif, if that's the right word, that makes such an impact? Well, I actually love the Skins theme song, so let's just listen to that and then talk a little bit about this question. This is actually making me really nostalgic. I love this theme music and I really liked this show, but I think the theme music is striking and unusual. So that's composed by Seagal, the composer, and it changed throughout the run of that show, Skins, which it was a really good show. It, it uh, premiered in 2007. It really kind of captures that era in some ways. It's a British TV show about a bunch of teens struggling with kind of real teen stuff. Um, I don't see a lot of people talk about it, but I watched the first couple of seasons and really liked it. And that music makes me very nostalgic because it's a beautiful thing. It's very interesting music and um, not just I, I remember at the time just being very struck by it. It's this sort of four note or really four chord motif that just repeats even as the rest of the music layers and there's all of these curly cues and arpeggios and complicated electronic sounds going on in the background. It's really just about those four chords. So it's kind of just four chords, it's in the key of D, and I hear it as kind of going G, then to A, then to B minor, and then to D, which are four very common chords in the key of D, that's one, five, six, and four. In fact, those are the four chords, it's just ascending from the four chord, the G chord, up to D. So G, A, B minor, D. It's kind of that shape, that's sort of what I'm hearing, but there's so much other stuff going on, and it's really just about this, like, this sense of pulsing and repeating. It has an almost clock-like feeling to it, and it really just conjures a whole specific vibe. So Grace asks, why do four-note motifs affect her the way that they do? And I don't have a clear answer for that because I can't tell anyone why music affects them the way that it does. But I do think the number four is kind of an interesting one in music. The number three is a very important number, right? For kind of a lot of art, but I'll just speak to music because I'm a musician. But, you know, the rule of threes is just sort of a known thing. Like when you're listing something, you say apples or oranges or bananas. You know, like the three is just a kind of powerful number because it gives you the first thing and then the new thing and then the surprising third thing. This is the reason that so many movies come out in trilogies. This is why three-act structure is a big thing in screenwriting. Three is just a very stable and good number for structuring art. That's true in a lot of ways of music. Let's just talk about chords. I mean, a three-chord song is a super common thing. A two-chord song less common. One chord song, even less common. Both of those totally exist. Um, so what? Miles Davis is so what? That's a technically a two chord song, though they kind of play more than two chords in that song. But anyways, two chord songs aren't that common. Three chord songs, super common. The most common chord progression in all of popular music is the blues. And the most basic version of the blues has three chords. You got your one chord. Then you go to your four chord. You go back to your one chord. Then you go to your five chord, and then to your four chord, and then to your one chord. So the one chord, the four chord, and the five chord, that's three chords, that's all you need to make a blues, and a million songs are blueses, and if you want to learn more about the blues, go back and listen to my episode about Kiss 
by Prince because I talk a lot about the blues there. And that song is a blues. Like a lot of modern songs actually are blues. It's not all Muddy Waters and B.B. King. But the blues only needs three chords. So three is a very sturdy number when it comes to music. So Grace, I'm just kind of interested by your question and by the fact that you find yourself moved by four note melodies because that fourth note is sort of interesting. It rounds off the structure. It's not necessary for the basic framework of a musical element. If you think of you know, music as sort of fractals, you know, elements within elements within elements, three is just a very stable thing that we seem to gravitate toward. Four, it rounds it off. But I think that at least in the case of this Skins theme, the fact that there are four notes repeating, it gives it a rounder feeling and it makes it feel a little bit more circuitous. It feels a little bit more like it's just going around and around and around in circles in a way that I think is really beautiful and fits with the energy of the show. So in this case, I think taking what could have been an odd number of chords and turning it into an even number of chords actually really works in this song's favor. Now, while I was recording the answer to this question, I actually realized that I wrote a song that was sort of inspired by that chord progression. I remember hearing that ascending four chord progression in the Skins theme and being kind of enamored of it and thinking, you know, I could write a song that kind of followed that same format. So I came up with this little thing in D minor and I wrote a song around it. It's called Beneath the Snow. And you know what? Here, let me go over on my vocal mic and sing you a verse. Relic of a simple past, you know, hidden in the leaves beneath the snow. Rainbird came and froze away, changed the rain and died that day. Buried in the leaves beneath the snow. Yeah, that's Beneath the Snow, and I've had that song kind of bouncing around in my head for years now. I've never recorded it, but I am pretty happy with it. And it's funny, it really took answering this question to remind me that it was inspired, like the initial kernel of an idea was from that Skins theme. I just remember hearing those chords and really being enamored of them, of the way they moved and that spiraling feeling and wonder if I could write a song based on it, which is what I did. It's just kind of D minor, you know, moving up a D minor scale. So it's a little bit different, you know, kind of a different key center. It descends at one point. But the beginning kernel did come from that four chord motif and it kind of got to me the same as it did for you, Grace. So I thought that was kind of cool and figured that I would share it. Goes to show you never know where the germ of an idea for a song is going to come from, and you just got to keep your ears open to the possibilities. Also, TV is good, actually. Caroline writes on Dig Down by Muse off their 2017 album Simulation Theory. At about a minute and 24 seconds, they clearly reference the George Michael song Freedom 90 off his album Listen Without Prejudice. They sing the word faith in a similar harmonic structure to the way they sing freedom on the George Michael song. And of course, also faith was a huge hit for George Michael. I think this is Muse showing a bit of respect to a British songwriting legend. What do you make of this kind of borrowing or referencing? Well, this is actually pretty cool. So let's listen to it. This is uh, Dig Down by Muse. Let's start with that. Dig down Dig down Dig down And fight 
I do love Matthew Bellamy's voice. Um, just for anyone listening to this episode who didn't listen to everything in last year, I did do an episode about Muse last year, and there's actually a bonus episode as well in the Patreon feed about their re-release of 2001's Origin of Symmetry, which is super interesting, that re-release. Anyways, yeah, so let's now listen to George Michael's Freedom. This is an amazing song. George Michael is so good. Um, let's listen to Freedom, and I think you'll immediately hear the similarity that Caroline is asking. Right, so yes, there is definitely a similarity between these two songs. They're using the same chord progression. It's a chord progression that's known as a double plagal cadence. It's very, very popular in pop music because it's a really good chord progression. I love this chord progression. It's probably been in some songs that I've talked about at the very least in Q&A episodes. I sort of remember mentioning the double plagal cadence in the past. So just really quick to explain what a plagal cadence is and thus what a double plagal cadence is. A cadence is anytime you resolve usually to one, a chord progression starts on one chord and then resolves to another one. It's just one of those rules of European music theory. An authentic cadence is a five to one. So in the key of say G, you would go from D to G and that's sort of how a phrase would end. You would go through a whole series of chords and then at the end you would have an authentic cadence where it goes five and that has all these leading tones and it really leads forward to one, and that's the most basic kind of cadence resolution. A plagal cadence is when you go from four to one, so in the key of G, you would instead go from C to G, and that's, you know, like the amen ending, the sort of hallelujah ending to a song as a plagal cadence, and that's just four to one. So a double plagal cadence is when you have two of those in a row. So remember in the key of G, the plagal cadence went from C to G. So if we just back that up a step and we do a plagal cadence going into C, the four of C is F, so we go F, then C, then G. And that's a double plagal cadence. And the key of G, what that really turns into, and for anyone who just kind of learns rock songs and doesn't learn that this is called a double plagal cadence, it's just a flat seven to four to one, which is just everywhere. I mean, it's a very, very common chord progression. And you'll hear lots of very compelling chord progression. It's very dramatic. It lends itself to really cool melodies. One really famous example of a double plagal cadence is actually Lord's song Royals, which was a huge hit uh, back in the early 2010s. Great use of the double plagal cadence in that song. So yeah, double plagal cadences just have that sort of propulsive, dramatic quality to them. Lord's Royals is in D, that's going from D to C to G, then back to D. Muses Dig Down is actually in the key of G, so they start on G, they sing Dig Down on the G, then they go down to F, they sing Dig Down, and the choir definitely moves very similarly to the George Michael tune on the F, then they go to a C, big old Dig Down on the C, that's the four in the key of G, then the four resolves to one, to the G, to one, double plagal cadence. Dig down. Dig down. Dig down. And find faith when you close to the- so 
now going all the way back to George Michael, Freedom is in the key of C, and it's very, very similar. I mean, what the backup vocals are doing on Freedom, super similar. It starts on a C, they sing Freedom on the C, then it goes down to a B flat, and the chord kind of complexifies, and they sing Freedom again on that B flat. Then they go to that big F, that big four chord, they sing Freedom one more time, and then it resolves to C. So to circle back to Caroline's question, what do I think of that kind of borrowing or referencing? I love it. I mean, this is what music is built out of. You know, this is this is really the stuff of of the sort of communal feeling of creativity that music can engender. I think it's really cool that Matt Bellamy sings Faith there. I mean, I think that does kind of put a little extra lampshade on it and make it clear that he is he is winking to this to this kind of tribute that he's doing to George Michael. You know, a, like like you say, a British songwriting legend, and it's really cool. I mean, he. He's using that chord progression, he's using that sound, but he's totally doing his own thing with it. I mean, the Muse song, it, it channels freedom, but it sounds very different. And it's just one more example of the thing I'm always talking about, the way that music flows and changes and people evolve ideas and echo one another over the decades. I mean, Freedom, this George Michael song, it's a groovy song, right? I bet when you were listening to that, your head started bopping and you were like, man... This is a really funky song. Well, the reason for that is that the drum groove is actually a sample of one of the funkiest drum parts ever recorded. The name of this tune is the funky drummer. <laughs> the funky drummer. The funky drummer. That's right, George Michael's Freedom samples Clyde Stubblefield's legendary drum part on James Brown's Funky Drummer. The funky drummer. Man, Clyde Stubblefield, Jabo Starks, those guys, those drummers with James Brown, they were so influential. And it's super cool that basically the magic of recorded audio, which only, you know, became a thing like in the last hundred years, made it possible for one drummer's part to ring out across the decades like that. And I mean, George Michael certainly identified it when he opted to use this drum part on Freedom. And it's a big part of what makes that song work. It's a really funky song. And that's because it's one of the funkiest drum parts ever that he's using. And that actually brings me to something that's a little bit less cool. And that's that Stubblefield in particular has not gotten the credit that he deserves. And more importantly, he hasn't really gotten any royalties for that drum part, even though he's the guy who, you know, along with Jabo Starks, I mean, they really popularized that fatback funk thing that James Brown was so known for. But James Brown, notoriously a tough band leader and also kind of notorious for not really giving credit to individual members of his band, which makes sense in a way that JB's, his band, they were really, really tight and they were kind of an organic unit. But the individual players in that band were each huge parts of just the sound of funk and the sound of American music. So the fact that Clyde Stubblefield's groove on the funky drummer was sampled on, I mean, this song was sampled on like everything from classic hip hop, like Fight the Power by Public Enemy. To more recent stuff like Ed Sheeran's 2014 song Shirt Sleeves, which uses Stubblefield's groove throughout. And pretty soon you'll be floating away, and I'll hold on to the words you spoke of. 
Or like in 2010, Nicki Minaj used it on her song Save Me. She double-timed it and put it through a filter, but it's the same drone part if you listen. It's really everywhere to the point that it's kind of ridiculous. Like Clyde Subblefield's drum groove on Funky Drummer is the thing driving the Powerpuff Girls theme song. And Buttercup have dedicated their lives to fighting crime. Do you hear it? So purely from a musical standpoint, it's extremely cool that Clyde Subblefield's drum groove that he just recorded as a breakaway at the end of a 1970 James Brown song has gone on to become a not insignificant part of all of recorded music. But it would be nice if he got a little bit more credit for it, and obviously it'd be nice if the royalty systems made it possible for him to get paid every time someone used his drumming, because he's the one who hit the drums, who gave us that groove. So just going to shout him out here, Clyde Stubblefield, look him up. And I actually linked to a 2011 New York Times feature on Stubblefield where they talked to him about that funky drummer drum part and how he feels about the fact that it's been sampled so many times. It's an interesting read worth checking out, so that's down in the show notes. And hey, as it happens, I'm actually going to be talking about some of those foundational grooves a little bit more on the show later in year four. So look forward to that. All right, and that'll do it for this first mailbag of year four. Thanks so much to everybody who sent in questions. And yeah, by all means, send me more questions at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I'm going to be doing a lot of question answering here in year four, and I'm looking forward to getting more into it because, like I said, these episodes are really fun. They let me kind of stretch out and talk about a whole lot of different kinds of music. It's fun for me and hopefully fun for you, too. Thanks so much to everyone who's listening, and thanks to everyone who's spreading the word. I've heard from some folks who were able to recommend the most recent episode about Mastodon's Blood and Thunder to their metalhead friends, which is fun. But yeah, if you know somebody who you think might like the show, by all means, tell them about it. You can also leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen. Reviews are very helpful. They help people find the show. And I like to think that they convince people to listen when they do. Of course, you can also directly support the show by sending a donation, or you can sign up to become a patron over at patreon.com slash strongsongs. Welcome to new patrons who signed up in year four. And yeah, if you want to get some little bonus episodes of the show, that's the place to do it. This episode's outro soloist is Portland saxophonist Mel Carroll. Mel and I both were on a Shook Twins gig back in December. I liked hearing her play and asked if she'd want to play, and she said yes. So stick around for Mel, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs. (laughs) 